It was last June when the Gray Matter Research and Consulting Group, they released their new research regarding the arrested state of spiritual development currently occurring within the American church. And after creating a comparison chart between our natural growth and the stages of spiritual growth that every born-again believer ought to experience, this consulting group soon discovered that the average American Christian is failing, failing to become a mature believer. As a matter of fact, the spiritual maturity of most believers in America, it's equivalent to that of a toddler. That's right. The spiritual maturity of most believers here in America is comparative to that of a toddler. As a matter of fact, as we analyze the results of their research, we begin to see that 88% of believers have not yet advanced past the toddler stage, which is just two steps up from the newborn stage. And so past becoming a born-again believer, most Christians here in America have basically taken two steps in their Christian maturity by becoming spiritual toddlers. And what's even worse is this, that there's a mere 2% of American believers who have actually reached the most mature stage of Christian maturity by becoming those who have led someone to the Lord and helped to disciple them in Jesus Christ. Now, with all this in view, uh, we should begin our study today by asking a very simple question. And we should search our own lives by asking this. Am I suffering from an arrested state of spiritual development? Am I suffering from an arrested state of spiritual development? Or am I a Christian who is actually growing in the grace of God as we become more and more like Jesus Christ by the power of his grace? Well, with these questions in mind, we're going to spend our time today considering what it means to grow in the grace of God. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that we grow in grace as we engage in prayerful intercession. Secondly, we'll learn how we grow in grace as we engage in communal connections. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn how we grow in grace as we engage in biblical exposition. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here we find Paul. He's encouraging the Christians there in Thessalonica to grow in the grace of God. Now, as you make your way to the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, I want to spend some time putting our text back into its context. It'll help us to remember that it was in our study last week where we found Paul. He's helping his audience to understand that the God of peace, he has a perfect plan to consecrate every Christian. And it was during that study when we considered the way in which the believer is sanctified or consecrated completely, which includes the sanctification of our body, our soul, and our spirit. Now, here in the final verses of this book, we find Paul. He's continuing to encourage every Christian to grow, to grow and be sanctified in the grace of God. And with this as our goal, I want to consider the plan that Paul presented here in the last four verses of this epistle. If you would look with me there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll pick up our study beginning at verse 25. Here Paul declares, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now here in the final verses of this letter we find Paul. He's concluding this epistle by encouraging the Christians there in Thessalonica to continue growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ by continuing to serve our Savior side by side there in their uh, Christian community. Just to be clear about this, it'll help you to know that the word grace, which is found there in verse 28, it's actually translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to the merciful kindness that a master would show to his inferiors or to his servants. In the context of the Christian faith, the grace of God then speaks of the unearned and unmerited favor that the Lord pours out on uh, sinners who will repent. So it's this grace of God that results in the forgiveness of sinners, and specifically the sinners who trust in our Savior Jesus Christ. I like the way that Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. It's verses 8 and 9 where he says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. According to Paul here, sinners are saved by the free gift of God's grace. And when we say that the grace of God is a free gift, well, what this means is that we can't earn the grace of God with our works. You'll never be able to do enough good works to earn the grace of God. At the same time, the gift of God's grace is also unmerited, which means we don't deserve it. If you think you deserve the grace of God, then you should take another look at your life. We have to realize that we do not deserve God's grace. It's a gift that is given despite the fact that we do not deserve it. The grace of God is simply a gift, and as such, it's a gift that is received by faith. It's by faith in Jesus Christ that we receive the unearned, unmerited grace of God. And listen, those who... uh, who do, those who have received this gift of grace by faith in Jesus, well, we've been saved and we've been set free from the condemnation of the law. And this is great news for us. And while it's true that we're saved by the free gift of God's grace, it's also true that we continue to be sanctified by the grace of God. I like the way that Paul put it in Titus chapter 2. It's there where he helps Pastor Titus to understand that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. To sum this up simply, listen, we're not only saved by the grace of God, but we're also sanctified by the same grace. We're saved by the grace of God, and we're sanctified by the grace of God. And in this sense of sanctification, the word grace refers to the merciful kindness by which God then helps every born-again believer to be transformed. It's by the grace of God that he transforms us into the believers that he wants us to become. 
It's by the grace of God, the unearned, unmerited grace of God that we now receive the spiritual power that we need so that we can begin to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And, and that's good news because, listen, in and of ourselves, we don't have the power to deny ungodliness. We don't have the power to deny worldly lusts. But by the grace of God, he gives us the power we need. The grace of God also teaches us how we ought to live, which according to Paul here is soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And it's for this reason that those who are saved by God's grace must also then grow from grace to grace as we wake up looking for more grace every day by which we are then sanctified by faith in our Savior Jesus Christ. This was precisely the point that the Apostle Peter was making in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's here where the Apostle declares, Beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, listen, those who have been saved by the grace of God should then also realize that the Lord is now calling every Christian to grow in grace. We've been called to grow in the grace of God. And, and, and listen, with this as the goal, uh, we should take some time to consider how those who want to grow in the grace of God, well, we ought to spend time engaging in the spiritual discipline of intercessory prayer. Now, to understand the connection here between growing in the grace of God and intercessory prayer, I want to take a closer look at our text today. And so if you would, let's back up here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's begin reading once again at verse 25. Here again Paul declares, Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now here in these concluding remarks, we find Paul, he's again invoking the grace of God upon those who were praying for him. He's saying, hey, pray for us, and I'm invoking the grace of God uh, to be poured out upon you. And as we consider the way that Paul here encouraged his believing brethren there at the church in Thessalonica to pray for him and to pray for this missions team, well, we would do well to consider the importance of becoming believers who are engaging in the spiritual discipline of intercessory prayer. And listen, I, I get it. There are tons of books out there on intercessory prayer. And, you know, a lot of people who are very focused on intercessory prayer, you know, want to make it seem like, you know, it's just like this, this incredible you know, uh, they're, they're, they're prayer warriors, you know, and they, uh, they're in the midst of the spiritual battle and they're like at the front lines with intercessory prayers. And it's like, I, I get it, calm down though. All right, so intercessory prayer is just praying for other people. That's really what it is. And, and is there spiritual warfare involved? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course there is. You know, but really at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're just praying for other people. We're praying for other people and so we should. With that, I want to take some time to consider something that Paul wrote about intercessory prayer. Uh, and, and we find this in his letter that, that he sent to the church in Rome. So if you would hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. 
As you make your way to the 8th chapter of Romans, well, I want to take a moment to point out that intercessory prayers are the supplications that we offer on behalf of others. Unless we, you know, uh, spend too much time, uh, you know, talking about uh, how some people view intercessory prayers, let's just consider a few biblical examples One example is found in uh, the prayers that Abraham presented for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He interceded for them and and prayed for them. That's simple intercessory prayers. Moses presented intercessory prayers uh, for the people that he led out of the land of Egypt. I would also remind you that the Lord Jesus presented intercessory prayers uh, for, for the entire church age. He prayed for those who were there with him, but also he prayed for those who would believe in him throughout the entire church age. Those were intercessory prayers. And now it's here in Romans. Here we learn that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us so that we might learn how to pray. How about that? Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 8. You would look with me there, verse 26. Here Paul informs us that the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Christian, listen, when it comes to the prayers that we present to the Lord, we must not fail to realize that we don't always know how we ought to be praying. We don't always know what we should be praying for. And, and we don't know uh, if the prayer we want to pray is according to the will of the Lord. It's for this reason that we should humbly ask the Lord to help us in our prayers. We should humbly ask the Holy Spirit to intercede for us, within us. Remember, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. And according to Paul, the Spirit himself is making intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, some people take this to mean that this is some sort of spiritual language that we can start praying, but but it says that these groanings can't be uttered. So it's not coming out of our mouths. These are groanings that happen within us. And I would even argue that these are spiritual unctions that help us to pray in line with the, word, uh, with the will of God. And so when you sit down to pray, uh, you, you ought to just take some time to humbly ask the Lord, help me to know what to pray for. Guide my heart as I begin to pray. And as we learn to rely on the infinite wisdom of the Holy Spirit, we will humbly receive the grace that we need to pray according to the will of the Lord. The proof of my point can be found in James chapter 4. It's there where James asks, Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. According to James, the Spirit of God dwells within us and yearns jealously for us. Or in other words, he has a desire for us to walk in line with the will of God. But we have to come to him humbly. 
we have to approach him in humility, recognizing that God knows better for us than we know for ourselves. And those who will approach him humbly will receive more grace. And every time we approach him humbly and prayerfully and asking him to guide us, we receive more grace that guides us and helps us to grow. Conversely, those who approach God with pride, well, God's not listening. God's not listening to the person who prays pridefully. God's not interested in the person who comes with their laundry list of here's what I want God and make it all happen and be my you know, cosmic Santa Claus. Just give me everything that I'm asking for. God's not interested in that. We have to come to God humbly, asking the Holy Spirit to guide us so that we know even how to pray. Rather than pridefully presenting our wish list to the Lord, let's learn to ask the Holy Spirit to intercede for us. And as he intercedes for us and, and, and you know, guides us with unctions within us, then we can receive the spiritual guidance that we need so that we can pray according to the will of God. And in this way, the intercessions of the Holy Spirit help us to learn how to pray. Not only that, but the intercessions of the Holy Spirit then help us to learn how to intercede for others. I have no doubt that we all have people who have asked us to pray for them. I'm guessing that many of us have long prayer lists as We've spent much time praying for other people. And, and oftentimes, you know, people come to us uh, with a prayer request for a specific end that they're praying for. How do we know if that's what God's will is for them? How do we know if that's actually the thing we ought to be praying for? Maybe we ought to be praying for the contrary. How do we know? Well, with all this in mind, I want to consider something that Paul wrote in his first letter to Pastor Timothy. So if you would continue holding your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And as you make your way to second, uh, the second chapter of 1 Timothy, I just want to take a moment to point out that, you know, every Christian is most certainly called to offer intercessory prayers for others. And so we should. We ought to pray for others. We ought to intercede uh, on behalf of others. And at the same time, you know, we ought to be praying according to the word of God, which is in line with the will of God, as we look to the Holy Spirit to, to help us to know what we ought to be praying for as we set out to pray for every person. I want to consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1, here Paul declares, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping Pastor Timothy to understand that Christians have been called to offer prayers of intercession for everyone. This includes the list of people who have asked us to pray for them, and this includes everyone else. We have to be praying for all the people of the world, and especially for those who are in positions of authority. Now, how should we pray for those people? Well, sometimes I just pray imprecatory prayers, you know, as I call for the Lord to destroy them. But, uh, but maybe that's not right either. 
And so we have to go and ask the Holy Spirit again, help me to pray for these people. Help me to pray for these people in authority. Help me to pray for these politicians. Help me to pray for those you know, who are on, sitting on school boards and, and, and who are you know, on, on city council boards and these sorts of things. We've got to ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Help us to pray for other people. And at the same time, realizing that we need to be praying in, in this sort of way so that we can, according to Paul, lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Christian, listen, do you realize that the time that we spend complaining about politicians and people in power does not help us to grow in grace? It doesn't. But the time we spend praying for them, praying that God would intervene in in our country and in our government, the time we spend praying in this sort of way, praying these intercessory prayers, this will help us to lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. We grow in godliness and reverence by the grace we receive as we pray for other people. And so we ought to be. We ought to be praying for their decisions. We ought to be praying for their salvation if they're not saved. If you want to grow in the grace of God, we should spend time praying for others with the prayerful intercessions that are led by the Holy Spirit who is dwelling within us. Now this brings us to our second point because listen, we not only grow in grace as we engage in prayerful intercessions, but we also grow in grace as we engage in communal connections. And to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here we find Paul, he's continuing to encourage the Christians there in Thessalonica to grow in the grace of God. And with this as the goal, let's take another look there at verse 26. Here again, Paul declares, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, I've instructed uh, Franco and his team to, to follow this command, but he just refuses to for some reason. I, I don't know. Paul here is encouraging the Christians in Thessalonica here to greet one another with a holy kiss. And as we consider this command, it's my guess that there are some who are super excited by this verse. Because let's be honest, they haven't been kissed in quite some time. And so they're thinking, maybe this is the day I'm going to get my kiss. Then there are those who are thinking, oh no, not this verse. I hope that weirdo that's been stalking me doesn't try to kiss me today. Well, regardless of your response to this text, it'll help you to notice here that Paul, he's not giving us permission to go around kissing people with some sort of inappropriate passion. That's not what he is saying. And in order to understand what Paul is saying, it'll help us to know that there were many cultures there in the first century, much like there are cultures here in our world today, in which it's customary for people to kiss each other on the cheek as a greeting or as a goodbye. I remember the time that I spent in Morocco and going into the public spaces, going into a restaurant or going to a coffee bar, uh, and I would see men who were, you know, close friends gathering together for coffee, and, and it would begin with about 15 minutes of, of, of all the guys around the table just making their rounds, kissing each other on the cheek, and you could always tell which ones were a little more friendly than others. You know, so, some of these guys were like, you know, like 10 kisses, five on each cheek, and, and that sort of thing, and it's just like, wow, man, that's, that's a whole lot of kissing going on in here. I don't know if they were cousins 
or, or what, but, uh, but it's part of the culture. You know, it wasn't strange in the context of that culture. In the context of, of the church, Paul's referring to this greeting as a holy, uh, a holy kiss. And so we know it wasn't a French kiss because nothing French is holy. But, uh, Paul calls this a holy kiss because it was given as a sign of loving affection and not as an act of lustful passion. And while it's true that Paul encouraged the Christians there in Thessalonica to greet one another with a holy kiss, listen, it's also true that he presented the same command to the churches in Rome and Corinth. As a matter of fact, it's in Rome chapter 16, uh, Romans chapter 16, where Paul declares this. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we find Paul declaring this. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul declares this. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. From this, we can see that Paul encouraged the Christians in Corinth, in Rome, and in Thessalonica to greet one another with a holy kiss. And it's interesting that all three of these churches were located on the other side of the Aegean Sea. So I don't know what was going on on the other side of the Aegean Sea, but clearly included a lot of, a lot of kisses going on over there. It's also interesting to note that we don't find this same command in the epistles that he sent to the churches in Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, and Colossae, which were in between the Aegean Sea and Israel. For some reason, maybe that just wasn't the culture or the custom in those areas. And as we examine all of the epistles that Paul sent uh, to the first century churches that he wrote to, well, we only find him encouraging this expression of intimacy in three of the seven churches that he wrote to. So less than half. Less than half of the churches that he wrote to, he encouraged them to greet one another with a holy kiss. And what this means is that, you know, there's probably more reason for us to side with the four that he didn't say anything to than to the churches that he did. And if we lived in a culture where greeting in this sort of way was a cultural norm, then we might fit in with the three churches that he told them to do this. But, you know, our culture here in America really isn't that of kissing one another on the cheek and greeting one another in this way. And so maybe a handshake or a fist bump or, 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 or maybe a, you know, a bro hug or something like that might, might be sufficient as we line up with Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, and Colossae. And if you desire to live on the other side of the Aegean Sea, feel free to move. So anyway, with all this in mind, listen, the, the point here wasn't whether or not to kiss one another on the cheek. The whole purpose, the whole point of this is Paul encouraging Christians uh, to embrace one another, to engage in a level of, of customary friendship within the Christian community uh, that is of even greater intimacy than that happening outside of the church. Every church ought to be a place where our fellowship of faith results in communal connections that encourage intimacy and accountability. 
And while it's true that we don't need to greet one another with a holy kiss, it's also true that the Lord is calling every Christian to become believers who are growing in grace as we learn how to embrace one another with true communal connections. And in order to further make my case, we should spend some time considering Luke's account of the primitive church. So hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts. I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 2. As you make your way to the second chapter of Acts, I just want to take a moment to point out that the New Testament epistles provide us with the blueprint for the first century church. So if you really want to know how the church is supposed to function, we really need to look to the epistles and and not the narratives like we find here in the book of Acts. You know that most heresies that have been birthed within the church have come from the book of Acts. You know, because it's easy to take a historic narrative and, and, and twist the meaning of it and, and, and force it into some sort of application that no longer applies to the church age. The epistles provide us with the didactic instructions for how the church is supposed to function in the first century. And yet, at the same time, I do believe that Luke's description of the primitive church, it provides us with a really good picture of the raw response of those who entered into the first century church there in Jerusalem. And so uh, we do well to consider the example of those believers who were the first fruits of the Holy Spirit there in Jerusalem. If you would look with me here at Acts chapter 2, I want to begin reading at verse 42, because here Luke tells us that they, that speaking of the, these Christians, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Remember, the New Testament hasn't been written yet. So they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Sounds incredible. Luke here is describing the communal connection that was occurring where the first century church these, these new believers were coming and, and engaging in fellowship together there in Jerusalem. And, and we see here that they're, they're listening to the, to the instructions of the apostles and you know, they're breaking bread and they're praying together and there's miracles happening and, and, and they were using their possessions to support those who were in need. And it was just this community, uh, a community of Christians that were supporting one another as they you know, broke bread every day and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, went from house to house you know, sharing meals together. And, and listen, I don't mean to suggest here today that you know, Calvary South Austin is going to start doing daily potlucks at everybody's house, and we just need your address now. You know, we're not, uh, we're not going down that road. But I do believe that there is an aspect of what we see here that the church is totally missing out on in, in this day and age. I believe that there are many in the church today who are failing to grow in the grace of God, and the reason why is because they want to remain on the fringe of the church. 
You know, they come in at the last minute on Sunday and leave the, the first people out the door, and they never connect with anybody in the church throughout the rest of the week. You know, it's like there's, there's no community for them at their church. They don't spend any time serving. They don't spend any time hanging out with other Christians at their church. There's no communal connection. And so there's a failure to grow in grace. We need to be connected to one another. We need to be involved in each other's lives. We, we need to be uh, believers who are embracing one another. And while I don't mean to say that you have to greet one another with a holy kiss, I do think that we ought to have a level of intimacy with the other people at church so that we're offending one another and hurting one another's feelings and, and, and upsetting one another to the point that we have to walk in grace with one another that we have to offer forgiveness to the people who have hurt our feelings, that, that, we, that we actually have to, in order to maintain the connection, experience conflict. This is how we grow in grace. If you're never put to the challenge of having to show grace to someone that you don't want to show grace to, then how will you grow in grace? One reason why so many Christians fail to grow up in the Lord is because they aren't really connected to their Christian community. And so they aren't really experiencing the favor that God pours out on those who engage in their Christian community. And to further prove my point, let's take a closer look at Luke's description, which is found there in verse 47. Here we learn about those who were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, you might be interested to know here that the word favor, which is found there in the middle of this verse, it's actually translated from the same Greek word, which is also rendered grace. That word favor, it's based on the same Greek word translated grace. And while it's true that Luke was using this word in reference to the favor that the first century Christians were enjoying with others in their community, uh, we must not fail to notice that the favor of God was being poured out in this church because the Christians were corporately entering into communion with Christ Jesus as they sang the praises of our Savior. Now just to be clear, the word praises, which is found uh, there in verse 47, it's translated from the Greek word which was used of the believers who corporately extol the Lord with songs of devotion and adoration. And so these Christians were entering into community together so that they could sing the praises, or in other words, Chris Tomlin songs. They were, they were singing Chris Tomlin songs to the Lord. And the Lord poured out his favor on this church. Now, when it comes to the topic of corporate praise, listen, I'm not talking about the style of music. You know, some, some Christians come to church and it's just kind of like, I don't like the style of this music. These songs are too slow. These songs are way too fast. These songs are way too loud. These songs are way too soft. You know, I don't like the mix of that song. I don't like that person playing that guitar. Why does he look so funny? You know, like, like the, the, these are the sorts of things that that people get caught up in, or, or if they're not, you know, uh, you know, being critical of the songs or, or the, the, the level of the audio and these, well, then they're being critical of everybody else. Why aren't they clapping? Why are they clapping? Clearly that person can't clap. Why are they clapping? Why aren't they holding up their hands? Why is that person sitting down? Why are they standing up when everybody else is sitting down? Why is that person laying on the ground? 
Next thing you know, we're just, you know, we want to know why is everybody else not worshiping? Listen, the only person not worshiping is you. If your focus is on what everybody else is or is not doing, you're not praising the Lord. We need to quit worrying about, you know, the song selection. We need to quit. Listen, if we start playing Jesus culture and Hillsong, worry about that. Okay, you got a point there. But as long as the lyrics are theologically accurate, what does it matter if you actually like the song or they're not? Well, it's got a good beat and I can dance to it. And why is this our focus? The whole point of praising is to focus on Jesus and to sing his praises. And so if as you're mouthing these lyrics in your heart and mind, you're wondering why everybody else is doing or not doing those things, you're not praising And you might have your hands lifted up and you might be jumping up and down. But listen, if your focus is on everybody else in the room, you are not praising Jesus. And so let's focus on Jesus rather than what everybody else is or is not doing. And listen, if somebody starts running down the aisle and barking like a dog and these sorts of things, we'll pull them out of here and send them to Bethel and we'll, you know, we'll get them, you know, in in the right church. We need to have our focus on Jesus as we praise his name together. That's the point of the corporate praise. And as we do this, as we set our sights on Jesus Christ, then he pours out his favor on the church. And let's consider the way that he does this. Look with me again here at Acts chapter 2, verse 47, because there in the second half of the verse, Luke tells us here that the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. The Christian community came together praising Jesus. The favor of God was poured out on this community and the Lord added to the church daily. Now with every addition of salvation, there's more grace in the church. Because if I've received God's grace and you've received God's grace and we've all received God's grace and then in comes somebody else who also receives the grace of God, isn't that an addition of God's grace? Of course it is. And in this way, the church grows in grace as unbelievers become believers, receiving the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ. In this way, we can see how the church that engages in corporate praise will grow in the grace of God as the grace of God impacts the unbelievers around us, resulting in more and more conversions. To further make my case, let's flip forward two chapters to Acts chapter 4. Here we find Luke elaborating on this reality. And as you arrive there in Acts chapter 4, I want to focus your attention there on verse 31. Here Luke tells us that when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And notice, great grace was upon them all. Luke here is describing the way in which the great grace of God 
was poured out upon the first century church. And just to be clear, the great grace of God was poured out upon the multitude of believers who were worshiping God with one heart and with one soul. And listen, they were not only praising the Lord with one voice, but they were supporting one another with their financial offerings. And not only that, but they were uh, speaking the word of God boldly by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, And they were gathering together to receive biblical instructions from the apostles. And in the context of this community, great grace was upon them all. You might be interested to know here that the word great found there in verse 33, it's translated from the Greek word mega. And just to be clear, I said mega, not maga. This is not maga grace. This is greater than that. This is mega grace. Trust me when I tell you that our spiritual growth isn't based upon how we vote. And listen, we can vote for all the right politicians, and I fully uh, am am part of the political process. You know that I am. I encourage you to vote, and I uh, I encourage you to vote for Christians and and believers who uh, will go in and, and legislate biblical morality. I'm all for all of that. But listen, at the end of the day, I see a lot of conservative Christians online being very ungracious to other people not growing in grace, they're being very ungracious. And because they're caught up in this idea that if we can just get the right man in the White House, then it'll fix everything. No, it won't. It just won't. Because the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And the rise of the Antichrist is going to happen. No matter who we put in the White House, that's all going to go down. And so rather than becoming ungracious, you know, political pundits who are, you know, pushing people away from Jesus Christ, I encourage you to walk in the mega grace of Jesus Christ. And sure, take part in the political process, but let's be gracious, realizing that the people on the other side of the aisle aren't our enemies, We need to help them to come to faith in Jesus Christ, whether they like Trump or not. Amen? As for our own spiritual growth, listen, if you truly want to grow in the grace of God, then you need the mega grace of God to be poured out upon your fellowship of faith. And while we aren't required to greet one another with a holy kiss... It's also true that the born-again believer who wants to grow in the grace of God must first be committed to Christ and connected to other believers within our Christian community. Now, this brings us to our our third and final point. Listen, we, we not only grow in the grace of God as we engage in prayerful intercession, and we not only grow in the grace of God as we... Uh, you know, engage in communal connections here within our Christian community, but we also grow in, in the grace of God as we receive the biblical exposition of God's word. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to First Thessalonians chapter 5. Here we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there in Thessalonica to continue growing in the grace of God by reading the Bible. Uh, with this as the goal, let's take another look there at verse 27, where Paul declares, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. 
Now, here in the final verses of this letter, we find Paul encouraging the pastor there in Thessalonica to read this epistle to the entire congregation. And for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word epistle, it's, it, it's not a reference to the apostles' wives. That's what some people think. You've got the apostles and their wives, the epistles. Uh, and that's, that's not a real thing. The epistles are written messages, or what we might call letters. So whenever I refer to the New Testament epistles, I'm referring to 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament. We have 27 books in the New Testament. 21 of them are the epistles, or the letters, which were written by Peter, James, John, Jude, and Paul. Now, there is some debate about the identity of the individual who wrote Hebrews, And yes, my personal opinion that there are many, many, many good reasons to believe that Paul authored the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic about the fact that Paul wrote this letter, but but I do believe that 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 is the case. And I get it. There are some people who are very dogmatic about not being dogmatic about who wrote this epistle. I would not be that kind of a person because I just think it puts shames to dogs. And uh, so with that... Listen, if I'm correct, then what this means is that Paul wrote 14 of the New Testament epistles, which then, of course, includes this book that we're studying here today. What this also means is that Paul was the one who was instructing the pastor of the church there in Thessalonica to read this epistle to all the holy brethren there at the church in Thessalonica. And by holy brethren, I'm sure he's talking about the sisterin as well. So now, just to be clear, listen. When, when we consider this instruction to read this book, that word read, which is found in verse 27, it's translated from a Greek word, which in this context was directing the pastor to deliver the content of this letter out loud to the entire congregation. And listen, I have a hard time believing that this pastor then turned around, grabbed this letter, pulled one sentence out of its context, used it as a springboard for an entire sermon about something else altogether. Yeah, I don't think that pastor did that. As a matter of fact, I think it would be be ridiculous for a pastor to do that, to take a sentence out of its context and then use that as a springboard for talking about something else that this verse doesn't mean at all. This is not the right way to read this epistle. I'm guessing that this pastor probably read this letter sentence by sentence, beginning with the first sentence, and reading all the way to the last sentence of the book. In in similar fashion, listen, I employ an expositional approach to the way that I teach the Bible. In other words, I begin at the beginning of the book. Because that's how you typically approach every book, right? You typically, unless you're reading the the dictionary. And, and, you know, if you're reading the dictionary, uh, then uh, you probably need to see see a psychiatrist. But, uh, But listen... When you approach a book, you start at the beginning of the book and you read through to the end of the book. And then we can examine the entire book in its context and understand it according to the author's original intent. And listen, I don't mean to suggest that all topical Bible studies are automatically wrong. A pastor who understands context can certainly put together a topical Bible study uh, considering the fuller context or the greater context of the passage that they're coming out of. And yet at the same time, It's important to understand that many, many pastors in the world today take a a verse out of its context and use it as a pretext for teaching something that's not even found in the Bible. And with that, we have to be careful. 
There are many pastors in the world today who don't understand the basic rules of biblical exposition. They don't understand hermeneutics. They don't understand how to exegete a passage. And, and yet, you know, people show up and listen to the, these pastors teach the Bible and they just take a verse and use it as a springboard and they launch out into outer space with information that is nowhere found in the scriptures. Be careful with these pastors. Pastors will do well to just read the text and teach it line by line, verse by verse. One reason for why I say this is that the original Greek word, which is translated read, is not only a command that directed the pastor of the church to present the content of this letter in context to the entire congregation, but the same word translated read carries with it the idea of communicating correct information so that those who are listening have accurate knowledge of the content that's being read. In a similar fashion, the purpose of expositional preaching It's to provide every parishioner with accurate knowledge about God's word. To take every verse in its context so that we can understand the original intent of the author. With all that being the case, I I want you to understand that biblical ignorance, in my opinion, is one of the greatest reasons for why so many Christians are failing to grow in the grace of God. Biblical ignorance is one of the greatest reasons for why so many Christians are failing to grow in the grace of God. And to prove my point, I want to consider the way that the Apostle Peter explains it in his second epistle. So if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. And as you make your way to the first chapter of 2 Peter, I just want to take a moment to point out that the data on biblical ignorance within the church, it's very similar to the data on immature Christians who are suffering from an arrested state of spiritual development. The numbers are very similar. I'll remind you, it was back in the beginning of this study when I appealed to the recent research that helps us to see that 88% of believers are failing to advance past the the toddler stage of their spiritual maturity. And as I consider the current state of the church here in America, I can't help but to wonder if this isn't based on the lack of spiritual, uh, or if, if the lack of spiritual maturity is based on the fact that most Christians in our country don't really believe the Bible. Oh, they'll pick and choose the things they agree with. But they don't believe in biblical inerrancy. They don't believe in the divine inspiration of the scriptures, that the word of God is actually God-breathed. And according to recent research conducted in 2021 by the Cultural Research Center, listen, 9% of those who identify as Christian actually believe the Bible is accurate and reliable information about God. Remember, 88% are failing to grow. And 9% actually believe the Bible has accurate, reliable information about God. I'm not saying that correlation is causation in every case here, but these numbers certainly seem to, to line up, don't they? And listen, what's even worse than this is that the church in America is filled with pastors who are failing to present their people with biblical exposition because they don't see the value in it. 
As a matter of fact, it was last year when the Cultural Research Center revealed the results of their American Worldview Inventory, and according to their data, only 37% of Christian pastors here in America actually have a biblical worldview. Amazing. 37%. The number should be 100%. 100% of pastors should have a biblical worldview, and yet it's just 37%. And listen, when these researchers zeroed in on the churches that have more than 600 congregants, the number drastically dropped. 15% of the pastors in those churches with, with, with numbers larger than 600 actually held a biblical worldview. The, the, the data actually reveals that the larger the church, the less likely the pastor actually has a biblical worldview. Now, that's not to say that all small churches are good and all big churches are bad. That's not my point. I'm just saying that, you know, it certainly seems to me that there's Christians heaping up for themselves false teachers to tickle their itching ears, just as Paul promised. And as for these pastors, listen, the pastor who fails to hold a biblical worldview will also fail to present the people in their church with the biblical exposition that will actually help us to grow in grace. And that being the case, well, as we consider how many pastors actually have a biblical worldview, it's no wonder that 88% of American believers fail to advance past the toddler stage of their spiritual maturity. And that's just a sad state for the church here in America. In order to understand the reason for why I'm making this connection here, I want to consider the point that Peter made in 2 Peter chapter 1. If you would look with me here at 2 Peter chapter 1, I want to focus your attention at verse 2 where the apostle declares this. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life. And godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which, having, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Here in this greeting, Peter here helps his audience to understand that the grace of God is being multiplied not just added to us through favor, but it's being multiplied to those who spend time acquiring the knowledge of God and of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And seeing how this epistle contains the knowledge of God, seeing how this epistle contains the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord, well then it only stands to reason that those who spend time studying this epistle will then also grow in grace as God multiplies his grace to us. The Apostle Peter elaborates on this principle there in verse 3. It's there where he assures his audience of the fact that God's divine power has given to us how many things? All things. God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. It's by the divine power of God that he graciously, it's not earned, we don't deserve it, he graciously gives us 
everything we need for our life and righteousness. And according to Peter, this gracious gift of provision is provided through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that every good pastor will recognize the value of preaching the whole counsel of God's word, line by line, verse by verse, according to the basic rules of biblical exposition. You see, it's the word of God that provides us with the knowledge of God's promises, which then provide us with his power so that we can become the sort of people that he wants us to become. And all of this is a gift of grace we do not deserve. This was precisely the point that Peter made there in verse 4, where again he informs his audience that it's through the knowledge of Jesus by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, through these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Think about that for a moment. The Lord has presented to us exceedingly great and precious promises through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This, of course, includes the gracious promise that those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are then empowered to share in his divine nature so that we can escape the corruption of worldly lusts that are caused by our own sinful desires. Now, I get it. We all face worldly lusts every day. We all are tempted to sin every single day. And yet those who will focus in on the knowledge of Jesus Christ then receive the exceedingly great and precious promise that power is given to those who focus on him. Power to overcome worldly lust. That's why Paul says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Isn't that amazing? Seeing how all of these gracious promises have been presented to us throughout the scriptures, well, then it's important for every pastor to present these truths through the discipline of biblical exposition, and it's important for Christians to choose pastors who are actually preaching the word of God line by line and verse by verse. Not only that, but it's also Christ, uh, crucial for Christians to receive uh, the, this biblical instruction so that we can continue growing in the grace of God. And I like the way that Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 3. It's verse 16 where he declares, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In other words, listen, Paul was encouraging the Christians there at the church in Colossae to make sure that they were spending time not only studying the scriptures, but also memorizing the scriptures. Please understand, you couldn't just go down to the local Christian bookstore and buy a Bible here in, in the first century. The New Testament hadn't been completed nor canonized, you know, and, and, and the printing press, well, it was a ways off. And so all copies were being handwritten at this point in time. And yeah, they were cranking them out. We now see the evidence in, in, in you know, all the manuscripts that have been found. I mean, they, they cranked out just thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. But chances are most Christians there in the first century didn't have their own copy of you know, 1 Thessalonians. And so Paul here is saying, hey, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. He's saying, memorize this. Memorize the word. 
hide it away in your heart and let it empower you. And we would we do well to do the, you know to to follow this, these instructions as well. Sure, I'm sure you have you know several copies, hard copies of the Bible in your house or in your car or in the back window of your car, collecting dust somewhere. Yeah, I'm guessing you have you know a Bible. And we all have access to every version of the Bible online. You know, we, you know, Bibles are everywhere. And yet, if the word of God is not hidden in your heart, then what good is it doing? Having a hard copy of the Bible in your home won't do you any good unless you get the content of the scriptures into your heart and into your mind. Those who have filled their hearts and minds with the wisdom of God's word will then grow in the grace of God because this information will cause us to respond to the promises of Jesus Christ with rounds of rejoicing as we sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. To sum this all up simply, listen, pastors are called to teach the truth of God's word according to the basic rules of biblical exposition. Christians have then been called to show up and listen to these Bible studies and receive exegetical instruction of God's word from their pastor. And then as Christians then go home and study the Bible on their own, they continue to learn more and more about the prophetic promises of God through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you know, as we hide the word of God in our hearts, we will want to respond to the goodness of God as we then encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with the grace that's in our hearts as we praise the Lord. And in this way, the biblical exposition of God's word helps us to grow in the grace of God. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study of this epistle, I want to conclude our time today by asking you one more time, Are you suffering from an arrested state of spiritual development? Or are you growing in the grace of God? Has your spiritual growth become stagnant? Or are you becoming more and more like Jesus Christ? Now, if it's true that you're a believer who belongs to the 88% of those who are still stuck in the toddler state of your spiritual development, then I encourage you to remember that we grow in grace as we engage in the prayerful intercessions that are based on the leading of the Holy Spirit. We also grow in grace as we engage in communal connections with others here within our Christian community. And finally, we grow in grace as we receive and apply the biblical exposition of God's word. With all of this, please trust me when I tell you the Lord doesn't want you to suffer from an arrested state of spiritual development. He wants you to grow in grace. And while it's necessary for every new believer to mature through the toddler state as they continue to mature spiritually speaking, it's also true that It's shameful for Christians who have been believers for 10, 20, 30, 40 years to behave like spiritual infants. That being the case, I want to wrap up this epistle by encouraging every Christian, we must grow in the grace of God for the glory of God. And as we continue growing in the grace of God, listen, the Lord Jesus will begin to empower us with the Holy Spirit so that we can become those Christians who are helping others 
to become believers who are also growing in the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word, for how you use it to challenge us and change us. Lord, we thank you for the conviction and the encouragement. And now, Lord, help us to leave here today growing in your grace. We pray that you would help us to accomplish all of this for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.